West Legal Ed Center welcomes you to Celesc Master Tax Series, Alphabet Soup for Offers in Compromise. To send a question to the presenter, <clears throat> type in the box below the participation tab. Program materials can be found under your supplements tab. We also encourage all the listeners to complete a survey of this program after the presentation. That link can be found under your viewer window. It is now my great pleasure to introduce our program speaker, Michael DeBliss III from DeBliss and DeBliss. Um, Michael, glad to have you. Thank you, Andre. Um, I'm so excited to be uh, speaking today on this topic of offers in compromise. Um, as some of you might know from some earlier presentations I've done, um, this is an area that I practice. Um, I'm uh, heavily involved in civil tax controversies as well as criminal tax. And um, it's always a pleasure to share some practical experience uh, with you uh, based on my years of, um, of uh, practicing this area. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm a trial lawyer, uh, believe it or not. Um, my interest in tax peaked when I uh, worked on a white collar criminal defense case um, as a young extern in a law firm, in a white collar criminal defense law firm in my last year of law school. And um, I quickly learned that um, to understand um, and defend clients who are charged with white collar criminal um, uh, statutes, it's imperative to have a uh, basic fundamental understanding of the tax code. And why is that? Well, um, tax, the tax, uh, civil tax and criminal tax issues always arise when there are white collar crimes such as money laundering, um, fraud, and um, matters of that sort. And so it's very hard to parcel uh, them out. And um, I realized that it was a very technical area. So that's what drew me into going back to school and getting my master's in tax law. At the time I did, I did not imagine that I was going to get into the civil arena. I thought it was going to be exclusively criminal tax, um, but uh, I was uh, surely surprised uh, because in my first year out of the LLM program, I was uh, doing what's called offshore voluntary disclosure submissions on behalf of US expats that were living abroad. Um, and that area quickly became a niche area that I um, specialized in for several years. Uh, today, um, since they've sunsetted uh, the offshore voluntary disclosure program, uh, it's not as a uh, as big an area of my practice as it used to be. Uh, today, I do find myself doing um, a lot of civil tax controversies, including audits of small mom and pop businesses as well as um, mid-sized companies. Um, so, a little that's a little bit about me, and um, the topic today is a fascinating topic. Um, and I think the way to back us into this topic is to talk a little bit about the concept and goals. Uh, taxpayers who have few assets and little prospect of generating sufficient income to pay a tax liability in full may be allowed to strike a settlement for less than the full amount due to settle their case. That is a long way of saying that the taxpayer, um, if they meet certain requirements, 
um, may be permitted to pay less than their tax liability in complete satisfaction of that tax liability. The IRS's acceptance of an offering compromise conclusively settles the liability, absent, of course, fraud or mistake. Uh, so what gives us this authority? It's found in the Revenue Code, Internal Revenue Code 7122. That section gives the Secretary of Treasury the authority to compromise, um, basically reduce any tax debt owed to the government. If the government accepts the offer and compromise, the taxpayer pays less than the full amount due to settle their case. And again, unless there is um, fraud or mistake, that offer and compromise would conclusively settle the liability once and for all. So what is the policy goal here? It's to achieve collection of what is potentially collectible at the earliest possible time and at the least cost to the government while providing taxpayers with a fresh start toward future voluntary compliance. It is essentially a way, the IRS is essentially saying, um, you know, we agree that we're not going to be able to collect the full amount. And rather than not collect anything, we'd rather collect something. Um, and in this case, um, you know, if the taxpayer um, is deemed to be eligible, uh, the IRS would in fact accept that lesser amount in full satisfaction. Um, and it puts the taxpayer on a path for a fresh start towards voluntary compliance. And remember, the tax code is a voluntary um, uh, system that we are involved in. Uh, we voluntarily uh, create and um, and uh, do our own taxes, and we voluntarily um, submit our tax returns to the government. It's not done for us unless, of course, we uh, become delinquent um, and we fail to pay our taxes. In that case, the IRS can certainly um, submit a substitution, uh, to, can certainly submit a, uh, a return on our behalf. And uh, obviously, in that case, the IRS isn't going to be looking at all the deductions that might be available to the taxpayer. So it's um, it behooves the taxpayer to um, submit on time and or apply for an extension so that the IRS doesn't um, create a, a substitution return that could um, put the taxpayer on the line for substantially more than what they would otherwise owe. The IRS will compromise tax liability on three grounds. There is uh, first the doubt as to liability, the second is doubt as to collectability, and the third is promotion of effective tax administration. We'll discuss each of them. The IRS allows taxpayers uh, three different payment options. Um, the first is a cash lump sum offer, which is usually payable within 90 days. The second is a short-term periodic payment offer, which is payable over a two-year period. And the third is a deferred periodic payment offer payable over the number of years remaining in the statute of limitations on collection. So if there are two years left on the statute of limitations on collection, that deferred periodic payment plan would be payable over those two years. A taxpayer requests an offer and compromise by submitting one of two forms. The first is Form 656 or Form 656-L. Form 656 requests relief based on doubt as to collectability and or effective tax administration. 
Um, it includes basically a checklist for the taxpayer to use to determine whether they're eligible to file an offer in compromise. For Form 656L, it's to request relief based on doubt as to liability. Uh, there is a processing fee. Uh, taxpayers must submit a $150 processing fee for offers based on doubt as to collectability and effective tax administration. Uh, this fee does not apply to offers based on doubt as to liability. Uh, the fee is mandatory if the taxpayer earns $24,000 gross uh, or more and is single. However, it can be waived in the case of low-income taxpayers. And how does the IRS define low-income taxpayers? It defines uh, that group of taxpayers as those with income at or below 250% of the poverty rate. Uh, the question that I get asked a lot is how um, in-depth uh, is an offer and compromise application? Well, it is. It's, it scrutinizes the taxpayer and it is um, sometimes the, the metaphor or the analogy is as if the uh, taxpayer is getting a, um, a veritable, um, you know, uh, check of their colonoscopy. It's that intrusive in terms of the information that it requests. Obviously, the IRS doesn't want to be hoodwinked by the taxpayer. They want to be sure that the taxpayer is being fully transparent and has put their cards on the table and is uh, being fully forthcoming in um, identifying all of their assets, including their banking accounts, um, tangible property that they own, homes that they own, um, boats, uh, you know, you name it, the tax, the IRS is going to ask for it. And um, the other thing to recognize is that, you know, uh, failing to or um, uh, fraudulently deceiving the IRS by, um, you know, by uh, represent making a false representation on an offer and compromise application could lead to uh, criminal charges. So it's very important that the application be filled out uh, pristine and that um, it be reviewed and um, you know uh, very thoroughly checked before it's submitted. Uh, the processing fee is not refundable, even if the IRS declares that the offer request is incomplete or incorrect and cannot be processed. Uh, the user fee can be refunded under certain circumstances. The first is if the IRS accepts the offer based on effective tax administration or the IRS accepts the offer because of doubt as to collectability and collection of an amount greater than that offer would create economic hardship for the taxpayer. Uh, let's talk about the down payment. Um, most taxpayers must submit a down payment before the IRS will process their application. What is a, an, uh, a down payment? Well, it's an advance payment. Um, and it's basically the amount that the taxpayer is pledging in good faith um, uh, with the submission of their application. It's generally not refundable even if the IRS were to reject the taxpayer's uh, offer request. For lump sum offers, the taxpayer must remit 20% of the amount of the lump sum offer. For periodic payment offers, the taxpayer must remit the amount of the first proposed installment and then comply with uh, his or her own proposed payment schedule while the offer is being considered. So uh, the thrust and the aim of this program is that if it's accepted by the IRS, the IRS 
expects or anticipates that the taxpayer is going to follow the um, uh, the proposed payment schedule. And so if the proposed payment schedule is, say, $500 a month every month for two years, then the taxpayer is going to be expected to keep up with that payment schedule. Um, and the, and the taxpayer must uh, remit the amount of the first proposed installment um, and then comply with their proposed payment schedule, uh, even while the offer is being considered. And so that's critical because it the operative word here is considered. Um, even if the offering compromise has not yet been accepted, the taxpayer in good faith has to keep up with the proposed payment schedule. And um, obviously what could happen is um, the IRS could reject the offering compromise. And uh, as we've already learned uh, from this slide, the taxpayer is not entitled to the advance payment being refunded, nor would the taxpayer be entitled to a refund of the um, installment payments that he had been making while the offering compromise was being considered. So um, we have to be very astute and make sure that our clients know um, the playing field and understand in advance that there are certain obligations that the taxpayer must adhere to even before a decision has been made on their application. Uh, the IRS waives the down payment requirement for low-income taxpayers and for offers based on data as to liability. The IRS will process an offer and compromise only if the taxpayer remits the required payments, completes the application in full, has filed all required tax returns and paid the necessary estimated taxes, and finally is not in bankruptcy. So this is um, what you'd be screening a potential client that comes to your office asking you for assistance and shepherding them through an offer and compromise. You'd want to go through this checklist and make sure that they are fully compliant with their tax obligations up to that point. And what does that mean? Well, that means that they filed all required tax returns and paid the necessary estimated taxes. You'd also want to make sure that they're not currently in bankruptcy. And then uh, the rest is purely um, academic because it means that you have to fill out an application on their behalf in full and then re remit the required payments in accordance with their uh, proposed payment schedule, even while it's being considered. If the IRS returns an offer to the taxpayer stating that it cannot be processed, can the taxpayer appeal the decision? No, that's a simple answer. What happens when the IRS accepts an offer and compromise? So this now gets the ball in motion. Uh, the settlement will not be reopened unless the taxpayer has falsified information, concealed assets, or there was a mutual mistake of fact. Uh, these are those fancy terms that we learned in contract law. Um, so again, it's very critical here to uh, let the taxpayer know upfront that um, this settlement you know, is safe and that it's um, unlikely uh, to be reopened unless there was some type of falsification, fraud, or mutual mistake of fact engaged in, the, in negotiating it. The taxpayer must agree to fully comply with all filing and payment requirements for five years from the date the IRS accepts the offer. Five years from the date the IRS accepts the offer. 
If the taxpayer fails to carry out his obligations under the agreement, the IRS can terminate the agreement and collect the originally determined liability. Now, I oftentimes get asked the question, you know, is it a zero, poler a zero tolerance policy? Meaning if the taxpayer um, fails to make an installment payment um, one, in one month, uh, does that mean that the IRS is going to automatically terminate the agreement? Um, no. However, there has to be a good reason for why the taxpayer failed to uh, make an installment payment. I would, um, I would suggest that if the taxpayer is uh, several months delinquent in making installment payments, that they would stand to be um, uh, in a, that they would stand to be in a position where these, uh, where the agreement would be terminated because that shows, uh, a pervasive, um, pervasive, uh, failure to pay. And the IRS can, you know, argue that it had to be willful, uh, assuming of course that the taxpayer doesn't have a legitimate excuse for failing to pay. If the taxpayer has lost a job and doesn't have the financial wherewithal to keep up with the payments, then that's another story. But um, in that case, you'd want to let the revenue officer know and not leave it to chance that the IRS will um, unilaterally terminate the agreement. Um, so there's always uh, gray areas, and you know, not you can't make a broad generalization that if a taxpayer has failed to make an installment payment in one month, um, that the IRS is automatically going to resort to terminating the agreement. Again, it depends on the circumstances. And this is where you as the advocate for your client is going to um, need to zealously advocate their position if this unfortunate circumstances, circumstances has come up. And again, just recognize that the original determined liability uh, would then be collected if the IRS ever terminated the agreement. Uh, what happens if the IRS intends to reject the taxpayer's offer and compromise? Uh, this would set into play the following chain of events. First, an independent review of any proposed rejection takes place. The IRS may not arbitrarily reject an offer and compromise until the independent administrative review has occurred. Second, if the IRS rejects the offer, the IRS must inform the taxpayer. If an offer and compromise is rejected by either the examination or the collection function after an independent administrative review, the taxpayer will receive an explanation of all available appeal rights. Uh, basically, these are, you know, this is procedural due process and the IRS is obligated to um, explain the appeal rights to the taxpayer. Third, the taxpayer has the right to appeal the rejection to the IRS Appeals Division. Uh, what is the IRS Appeals Division? Uh, they are basically the mediation arm of the IRS. Um, they will review uh, the dispute and um, they are considered to be a neutral even though they are employees of the IRS. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, taxpayers are very suspicious of um, about whether they're going to get a fair shake in IRS appeals since the personnel of IRS appeals are IRS employees themselves. Um, however, uh, that, uh, I, that IRS appeals division was set up as a result of Congress's 
um, setting up of the uh, act back in 1998 that expanded certain divisions of the IRS and created this division um, in the hopes of creating um, more fairness and the opportunity for a second look after uh, rejections of plans such as these. Uh, so it doesn't just exclusively relate to the denial of an offer and compromise. Um, if there's a dispute that the taxpayer has with the revenue officer over the amount of tax due and owing, um, they would have appeal rights uh, similar to uh, the ones here. Um, and they'd be able to uh, appeal to the IRS appeals division. And if they were to lose um, the appeal in IRS appeals, they would be able to file a petition in US tax court to challenge the underlying tax deficiency. Um, here, we're talking about IRS appeals. Um, and, uh, and you don't want to get IRS appeals confused with an um, appellate uh, court. Uh, so IRS appeals is an arm of the IRS. And that's why it's very important here to make that distinction. Uh, so if the taxpayer, the taxpayer has the right to appeal the rejection to IRS appeals, he or she has 30 days from the date of the rejection letter to request an appeal. Why is that significant? Well, if you blow that 30-day deadline, it's, it's over. <laughs> There's uh, no getting back the opportunity to appeal to IRS appeals. So these are hard and fast deadlines and they have teeth in them uh, because as you can see here, if you miss that deadline, then there are no further uh, remedies to um, contest the rejected offer and compromise. Um, may IRS chief counsel weigh in and provide an opinion on whether to accept or reject the taxpayer's offer and compromise? An opinion of IRS counsel is required in all cases where the unpaid tax, including interest penalties and additions, is 50000 or more. IRS chief counsel review consists of legal and policy review. IRS chief counsel's review is not a veto power, though. Um, although few revenue officers would settle in the face of a negative chief counsel review, uh, it's almost the equivalent of a prosecutor who's covering for another prosecutor um, uh, making a, the defendant a better plea offer on the day that they happen to be covering their colleague's case. Not going to happen uh, or rarely um, going to happen unless they have um, superior discretion or maybe are the team leader to that prosecutor. What are collateral agreements? Well, the IRS may condition acceptance of an offer and compromise on the taxpayer's execution of a collateral agreement um, to pay the IRS a certain percentage of his or her future income over a specified number of years. So essentially what this is saying is it's saying that the taxpayer um, may not be in a position to make monthly um, installment payments. And instead, though, uh, wants to strike an agreement um, that is based on the IRS taking a percentage of their future income over a specified number of years. So how might this circumstance come up? Well, the taxpayer um, who, let's say, is out of work um, might have uh, recently um, applied to a job and uh, it has been offered the job and is scheduled to start the following month. And perhaps the offering compromise and negotiations for this offering compromise are occurring um, still during this uh, 
period of where the taxpayers out of work and they don't have the financial wherewithal to begin making the payments. So instead, um, the as a condition of the offer and compromise, the taxpayer negotiates with the IRS to have a certain percentage of their future income um, garnished over a specified number of years and paid over as if it's a, a, as the monthly installment payment. Um, so for example, if a taxpayer has a potential to significantly increase his income over a relatively short period of time, the IRS may require the taxpayer to pay over a certain percentage of future income in excess of a negotiated amount. Uh, let's suppose that the taxpayer is a lawyer who has accepted a personal injury case on a contingency fee. If the case resolves within a certain number of years, let's say, for example, five, the IRS might insist that it get 25% or 50% of any amount in excess of $100,000. Um, so you can see here that these conditions are very specific. And um, they're not saying that the IRS um, automatically gets um, a percentage of the taxpayer's contingency fee. It's only if the amount of that contingency fee exceeds 100000 To the extent that it exceeds $100,000, then the IRS um, might have negotiated for 25 to 50% um, of the amount in excess of 100000 the IRS, as you can imagine, doesn't like these agreements because they have to monitor them. And, um, you know, when it comes to monitoring and having to, um, you know, follow taxpayers around, chasing them around for the money, um, that becomes a headache and it becomes difficult and nuanced to um, police uh, due to their caseloads. So they would rather be able to um, close the case up after a two-year period, then have it linger and stay open for as long as five. Uh, the IRS may withhold a refund from the taxpayer in the year that a collateral agreement is executed. Um, again, they have the power to do so. They are a super creditor. Offers based on doubt as to collectability. Uh, these are the most often accepted by the IRS. They exist when the taxpayer cannot pay the full amount of tax liability owed within the remainder of the statute of limitations on collection. Uh, so what this is saying is that the taxpayer agrees that the tax is owed, but doesn't believe that he can fully pay the balance owed. This type of offer is initially considered by the collection function and of the IRS and requires payment of a $150 filing fee. Um, so the territory we're in right now is we're um, crossing over from different functions uh, or different departments, as you might uh, you know, refer to them as in the IRS. We're talking here about the collection function and how uh, they might require a payment of a filing fee um, if the taxpayer is in a situation like this where they agree that the tax is owed, but they don't believe that they can fully pay the balance due. Um, and uh, within the statute of limitations period on collections. In evaluating offers on this basis, the IRS conducts an examination of the taxpayer's assets, liabilities, and earnings potential. 
what standard does the IRS use to determine whether an offer based on doubt as to collectability should be accepted? Uh, the standard, it comes out of case law, is does the amount reflect reasonable collection potential? Uh, what's the definition of reasonable collection potential? Um, the offer amount must exceed the sum of the taxpayer's net equity and the taxpayer's future income determined over a four or five year period, depending upon the terms of the offer. Um, so what does this mean? Well, if the taxpayer owes 80 grand and the reasonable collection potential is 30,000, but the taxpayer only offers 20,000, the taxpayer will have to increase his offer. That's basic here because, um, you know, the reasonable collection potential is $10,000 more than what the taxpayer is offering. And as we learned in the prior slide, the standard as to collectability is does the amount reflect reasonable collection potential? Um, $20,000 falls $10,000 short of what reasonable collection potential is for this um, fictitious taxpayer. Uh, calculating the taxpayer's equity in assets. What does that mean? Well, or what does it include rather? It includes cash. It includes amounts in checking and investment accounts. It includes cash value of any life insurance policies. And it, it includes any accounts receivable. Uh, the realizable value of a taxpayer's other real and personal property is its quick sale value. The quick sale value is 80% of current fair market value of the assets. How do we calculate the taxpayer's future income? When determining whether the offer should be accepted based on doubt as to collectability, the IRS also considers the taxpayer's earnings potential and the likelihood of any increases in future income. The idea behind here is that the IRS look, is looking at both income and expenses. Uh, so for income, the IRS projects into the future what it expects the taxpayer to be earning based on his or her present situation and then what it expects him or her to be doing in the future. So what it does is it essentially extrapolates uh, from the present to the future based on market-to-market uh, -market ratios in the industry that the taxpayer works. For expenses, the IRS projects into the future what it expects the taxpayer's expenses to be. To determine a taxpayer's future income, the IRS uses information from their collection information statement. This is uh, the veritable, um, how can we put it, uh, um, colonoscopy, if you want to call it. Um, it is a very detailed statement that um, pries and digs into the, um, you know, everything um, and uh, requires disclosure of uh, checking accounts, all, all of banking accounts, uh, personal property, uh, tangible property, real property, you name it, it's required to be disclosed. Um, I found in some cases that um, taxpayers who initially have an interest in doing an offer and compromise um, 15 minutes after reading through the collection information statement, they sometimes uh, change their uh, their 
direction and they decide uh, that it's no longer worth it. Um, in some cases, you know, this uh, taxpayers would rather not have the IRS know about uh, the, their property. Um, again, it's very intrusive, it's very invasive, and it requires full disclosure of any and all property, real, personal, tangible that the taxpayer owns. Uh, but to determine the taxpayer's future income, the IRS uses this Form 433 in combination with estimated national and local living costs, uh, named uh, collection financial standards. These standards are disregarded if the resulting amount would leave the taxpayer unable to provide for basic living expenses. So yes, um, you know, the IRS does have, you know, some compassion. <laughs> it's not going to leave the taxpayer destitute. Uh, with nothing more than their shirt on their back. Uh, offers based on data is to collectability in uh, projecting the taxpayer's future income. We're taking the taxpayer's monthly income and we're subtracting allowable expenses. What are allowable expenses? Food and clothing, these are based on a national standard. Out-of-pocket health care expenses, which are based on a national standard. Housing and utilities, which are based on standard living costs in the state and county in which the taxpayer lives. And transportation. This consists of um, ownership and operating costs associated with a car, mileage, uh, fuel. Um, ownership costs are based on a national standard. Operating costs are based on local standards. Um, and uh, that's because obviously uh, there could be a huge difference between a taxpayer who is residing in Chicago uh, or New York uh, who works, um, you know, a mile, um, you know, uh, down uh, the street from where their apartment is uh, versus a taxpayer who lives in Kentucky or uh, Nebraska who has to commute nearly an hour and 15 minutes through rural country to get to their place of business. Um, so this is based on a local standard, these operating costs. Uh, the taxpayer does not agree that he owes the tax in an offer based on data as to liability. So it's a um, it's an outright refusal. I don't owe the tax. Um, so generally the examination function of IRS, that's like the examination department, if you will, it considers this type of offer and the taxpayer is not required to pay the filing fee. Exceptions are offers submitted to compromise a trust fund recovery penalty, which is considered by the collection function. Uh, trust fund recovery penalty is a topic of a robust presentation that I do in connection with um, Celeste and that I uh, welcome you to take, um, as I believe it was done a couple of months ago and uh, recorded in the library. Uh, so I welcome you to view that presentation. Uh, it's a fascinating field, the trust fund recovery penalty. Uh, given that the taxpayer has other avenues available to negotiate with the IRS over the extent of his tax liability, compromises on the basis of doubt as to liability are rare. For example, um, there is the whole requirement for a notice of deficiency. Um, a notice of deficiency is basically the taxpayer's ticket to contesting the underlying liability in tax court. Uh, the notice of deficiency uh, basically is also known as a 90-day letter. It requires the taxpayer to petition to the U.S. tax court within 90 days of uh, the letter 
of uh, on the date of the letter, um, assuming that the taxpayer petitions the tax court within that 90-day period, then they are allowed to challenge the underlying tax liability in tax court. Um, I also do a presentation on U.S. tax court, uh, which I don't believe I've done yet, and I think it's coming up. But um, to give you a primer on U.S. tax court, it's... Um, I believe it's called like an Article Three court. It's not the same as a as federal court in so much as it's a judge who hears the case. There's not a jury that's impaneled um, to hear the case. It's a judge, and the judge is both the fact mind the fact finder and the uh, and the decider. Um, and basically, the um, taxpayer has the absolute right to contest. Uh, via a trial, um, and the rules governing the trials in U.S. tax courts are fascinating. Um, they differ uh, starkly from those in federal court, and um, the taxpayers actually able to appeal uh, an adverse ruling in tax court, and the appeal would actually go to the circuit of the court of appeals from where the uh, a taxpayer was located at the time of the filing of the notice of deficiency. Um, I believe. Uh, it's been a while since I've last looked at that um, residency requirement. But um, uh, regardless, uh, it's a fascinating procedure. The, the, the court rules surrounding U.S. tax court are, are absolutely fascinating. Uh, taxpayers may also contest liability in a refund or in a collection suit. Um, the, uh, the, the problem um, with a refund um, suit is that the taxpayer has to put up the amount in controversy. Uh, similarly, if the taxpayer were to contest liability in federal court, uh, they have to put up as like a bond the amount that is due and owing. So um, you can imagine that not many taxpayers are going to want to put that um, into an escrow, so to speak, when they don't think that they're liable for paying it. Um, so it's important to be able to explain to your client the difference between these two um, very different forums. And at the same time, if you're in federal court, though, you are allowed a jury trial. So uh, that's what you lose in U.S. tax court. You lose the opportunity to have your case heard by um, uh, a jury. Uh, you only The case goes before a judge. But in federal court... Uh, um, you're able to have your case heard before a jury, but you have to put up the amount in dispute as escrow or like as a bond while the case is pending. Um, and as I said, many taxpayers don't want to do that. Once the liability is judicially contested, the IRS will not consider offers in compromise based upon doubt as to liability. So what this is all saying, and I went off on a tangent, I'm sorry. And what this is all saying is that the taxpayer... Uh, likely has already already had the opportunity to contest the underlying deficiency by way of this notice of deficiency, which it, which kicks off or triggers the procedural um, due process requirement that the taxpayer has of having their case heard in U.S. tax court. So it's very rare that a taxpayer, by the time they are in a situation where they are um, you know, filing an offering compromise, it's very rare that they did not at an earlier time have the opportunity to uh, previously contest the underlying deficiency. And to the extent that they had an earlier opportunity to dispute the underlying tax deficiency, the IRS is not going to allow them 
a second opportunity of doing so by way of pursuing a doubt as to liability for an offer and compromise. And so it's saying here that through the requirement of a notice of deficiency that presumably would have happened at a much earlier stage than an offer and compromise, um, the taxpayers already had an opportunity con to contest liability in the tax court. Um, and so it's unlikely that the taxpayer will be able to, it's rare, I should say, that the taxpayer will be able to compromise uh, the liability on the basis of doubt as to liability. Once the, once the liability is judicially contested, the IRS will not consider offers in compromise based upon doubt as to liability. Um, administratively, taxpayers also have procedural rights, including invoking appeals office consideration to contest liability. Nevertheless, some taxpayers have not had an effective review of their liability for the assessed taxes. Um, and when we, and again, we're dealing with the with a situation where the assessment has already been made. In tax parlance, an assessment is a term of art. Assessment means that the tax has, that is the amount owed. It's final. Um, it is the end game. There is no more disputing it because, um, you know, assessment means that all that's left essentially is for the IRS to collect it. And so it's very rare after the IRS has made the assessment for the taxpayer to try to go back and contest the underlying tax um, deficiency, underlying tax liability. Um, but um, there might be some circumstances, albeit rare, when the taxpayer hasn't had effective review of their liability um, for these assessed taxes. What might have happened to have caused that? Well, maybe the IRS um, failed to um, issue them a notice of deficiency. In that case, they would have violated the taxpayer's procedural due process rights because the IRS has an absolute obligation to provide the taxpayer with a notice of deficiency. And absent them doing that, the taxpayer loses the ability to contest in tax court. There, you know, so there's a violation, a direct violation of a constitutional right, which we of course hold sacrosanct. Whenever there, we always try to lift up an issue to constitutional magnitude and um, and make the argument that the person's rights have been violated on a constitutional level. That um, that it, it catches the judge's attention very quickly, and um, and 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 signals to the court that um, the gross injustice may have happened here. And that um, you know it's got to be corrected, and that's why if you know if a procedural due process error was made, and the taxpayer, for example, was not issued that notice of deficiency or 90-day letter, and uh, they're at the stage of an offer and compromise, they may then be able to go back and contest the uh, underlying tax liability under this theory of doubt as to liability for their offer and compromise. Uh, they may not owe the taxes and they can use an offer and compromise to contest the liability for their underlying taxes. Taxpayers applying for an offer and compromise based on doubt as to liability have to file this form 656L. Uh, the form does not require taxpayers to submit a collection financial statement, which is that intrusive um, statement that we were talking about earlier. Uh, so what about <clears throat> uh, in these, what about offers based on doubt as to liability and doubt as to collectability. 
Well, these are what we might call combination offers. <clears throat> and what do we mean by that? Well, the liability issues are considered first um, by either the examination or the collection functions, depending on the type of tax. Why is that? Well, to the extent that the taxpayer is not liable for the tax, there's no reason for a complete investigation of the taxpayer's financial situation. So it's kind of like putting the, the cart before the horse. Uh, we want to get to the root problem first, and that's why we're going to uh, treat the uh, doubt as to liability issue as the paramount issue to resolve before we move on to doubt as to collectability. Because as I said here, if the taxpayer doesn't owe the liability from the very get-go, then we don't even get to the collectability portion um, because there's no nothing to collect. So again, um, in that case, there'd be no reason for a complete investigation of the taxpayer's financial situation. Um, if the revenue agent determines that the taxpayer is liable for the tax, the case will be forwarded to the collection function to consider whether the tax liability is collectible. Uh, so only if the revenue agent determines that the taxpayer is liable for the tax will the case be forwarded to the collection function. So again, we're in two different departments. Uh, I almost feel like when we talk about departments, I feel like we are at um, a mall and we're moving from like the, um, you know, the clothing section of the mall to the houseware section of the mall. But if it helps you to remember, um, I, the IRS is such an enormous agency. In fact, um, I've read and I think, you know, it's common sense that um, to know that the IRS is actually bigger than some um, small country uh, governments uh, are. Uh, they're just a mammoth, mammoth beast. And so, um, you know, they have different departments, um, you know, like a Macy's um, and a large, uh, you know, a large uh, black box department store. Uh, so, you know, again, we would start out in the liability uh, section, which is the, um, uh, which is the, uh, section we talked about here for liability. That's the examination section of the IRS. And if to the extent that the agent determines that the taxpayer is liable for the tax, we would then, the case would then progress to the collection function. And then their job is to consider whether the tax liability is collectible. Offers based on effective tax administration. Even if the taxpayer has assets and income that allows him to pay the amount of tax liability owed, the IRS may still accept an offer in compromise so long as it promotes effective tax administration. Uh, so what we're saying here is that on paper, the taxpayer may fully, um, may fully pay the liability on paper, it may look like the taxpayer can fully pay the liability, but there are extenuating circumstances uh, that with the acceptance of the offer, uh, the public would be confident that the tax laws were administered fairly and equitably. Uh, so it's a fairness um, doctrine, almost. Um, fair, fairness and equitable, equitableness, um, meaning that you know the taxpayer can fully pay the liability, but there are such circumstances that uh, with the acceptance of the offer, the public can be confident that the tax laws were administered fairly and equitably. Um, and so there's a whole 
um, you know, amount of case law that has been spawned by this um, notion of um, fairness and equitableness in um, offers in compromise. So the the issue with these cases is will the will accepting the offer promote effective tax administration? Uh, compromising the tax liability could promote effective tax administration for any one of these reasons. Uh, first, that collection of the entire liability would cause the taxpayer economic hardship. Uh, or second, compelling public policy or equity considerations provide a sufficient basis for compromising the liability. So we're in an area right now where the IRS is going to consider um, you know, um, sob stories. Um, they're going to con that they're willing to accept. Um, and I and I don't want to denigrate this notion of economic hardship. Uh, I don't mean to use sob story in in a callous sense. Um, I'm simply saying that the IRS is willing to hear the uh, taxpayer's narrative. Uh, or tale of woe, if you will, as to why they've come on hard times and why they can't pay the entire liability, even though on paper it looks, it would otherwise look like they can. And then the second grounds, of course, is this compelling public policy notion. Collection of the entire liability would cause the taxpayer economic hardship. So we're going to consider a few things under this catch-all category of economic hardship. It's its quite broad. Um, economic hardship might exist if the taxpayer faces a long-term illness, a medical condition, or disability, and it's foreseeable that his or her financial resources will be exhausted as a result. Um, I'm going to give you, you know, perhaps a, um, you know, a, um, a strong example to help drive this home. Let's suppose that a taxpayer, um, very uh, sadly, um, has uh, been diagnosed with uh, cancer. And let's suppose that the taxpayer is in uh, stage, one of the latter stages of very serious cancer, such as pancreatic cancer. Um, I would hasten to guess that uh, under those circumstances, um, you know, a stage three, stage four pancreatic cancer would uh, constitute a long-term illness. Um, where it's foreseeable that the taxpayer's financial resources are going to be exhausted um, quite uh, quickly uh, with the need for uh, chemotherapy uh, or other type of medical support. Um, so I would, uh, I, I would say in a case like that, um, it would be necessary to file um, an offer and compromise based on effective tax administration. Um, however, it can also cover cases where the sale or liquidation of assets to pay a tax bill would prevent the taxpayer from meeting basic living expenses. And again, this this dovetails into the um, you know uh, public policy um, aspect that the IRS doesn't want to leave the taxpayer destitute uh, with nothing more than the shirt on their back. Obviously, that would be setting the taxpayer up for future um, failure to make payments if they were to if they were to collect everything thus forcing the taxpayer to have nothing left to pay basic you know living expenses 
Compelling public policy or equity considerations provide a sufficient basis for compromising the liability. Uh, this is where the compromise will be justified only where collection of the full liability would undermine public confidence that the tax laws were being administered in a fair and equitable manner. So all we're doing is basically doing the negative, negating what we talked about earlier here, that compelling public policy or equity considerations provide a sufficient basis for compromising the uh, liability. We're saying here that, um, you know, we're, we're basically using the negative, that um, it can also cover cases where the sale or liquidation of assets to pay a tax bill would prevent the taxpayer from meeting basic living expenses. Um, okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, that goes, that is part and parcel of this section here. That uh, compromise will be justified only where collection of the full liability would undermine public confidence that the tax laws are being administered in a fair and equitable manner. No effective tax administration offering compromise will be accepted if it would undermine taxpayer compliance. Now, the IRS will not accept an effective tax administration offer if it determines that the taxpayer also qualifies for an offer based on doubt as to collectability. So if the taxpayer seemingly um, is eligible for both uh, the doubt as to collectability and effective tax administration, um, that guts or negates unilaterally uh, the taxpayer getting the effective tax administration offering compromise. Uh, it would default then to an offer based on doubt as to collectability. However, if payment of the liability would still cause the taxpayer economic hardship, the IRS may treat the offer as one based on doubt as to collectability with special circumstances. Essentially, that is saying it's an offer based on effective tax administration, except we're going to use different language and we're going to call it um, an offer based on data to collectability with special circumstances. The same factors that the IRS takes into account when processing an uh, effective tax administration offer are taken into account in a special circumstances offer. That's why they pretty much are one and the same. Um, we're just being, we're just, you know, uh, you know, it's a matter of semantics um, that the IRS is going to call one um, the effective tax administration and the other an offer based on data to collectability with special circumstances. Uh, what effect does an offering compromise have on collection activities? Uh, this is probably uh, one of the foremost questions that the um, taxpayer is going to have after they ask you questions about what um, you know, what do I have to disclose to the IRS in order to apply for an offering compromise? So once the taxpayer submits an offering compromise, um, the IRS cannot levy against his or her property while it's processing the offer. So if it takes the IRS, say, six months to process the offer, during that period, the IRS um, is uh, is prohibited from levying against the taxpayer's property. It's very, very important to understand that and let the client know that there's no risk that the IRS levies against their property while the offering compromise is being processed. So even if it subsequently rejects 
the offering compromise, that period during which it's being reviewed or processed, the IRS can't levy against the taxpayer. Uh, collection action is postponed for 30 days following rejection of the taxpayer's offer and during any appeal of that rejection. So the IRS has stayed um, uh, for an additional 30 days following rejection of the taxpayer's offer from collecting or taking any collections activities such as levying, garnishing, um, attaching liens, etc. Um, and what's notable here is that if the taxpayer um, during the 30-day period uh, following the rejection appeals that rejection, that would extend the period during which the IRS is prohibited from taking collections actions, from taking collection actions. Uh, however, much to the chagrin of taxpayers, the statute of limitations for collection is told during any period in which the IRS is prohibited from enforcing collection. So what the IRS uh, gives to the taxpayer, um, it takes a, from the taxpayer. Um, it's a double-edged sword, and the taxpayer has to understand that um, while the IRS cannot levy on their property while the offering compromise is being uh, reviewed and processed, um, the taxpayer is unfortunately not getting the benefit of time in the sense that um, the say the six months or longer that the IRS has been reviewing the application that doesn't come off the statute the period of statute of limitations for collections. So if it takes the IRS six months to review an offer and compromise application, during that six-month period, the IRS is prohibited from taking any collection activity against a taxpayer. However, the taxpayer doesn't get to um, have his cake and eat it too because that six-month period is frozen time or dead time um, and the statute of limitations is told or stopped. Um, and if, for example, the statute of limitations was due to expire within three months, um, it would not. Uh, it's told or stopped during um, that six-month period. That was the example I gave, uh, six months, that um, it took the, tax, the IRS to review the offer and compromise. So be mindful of that and let the taxpayer know, because you never know. The taxpayer might think, um, you know, that in, in his or her mind, um, that they're outsmarting the IRS by filing an offer and compromise because uh, the collection statute, the uh, statute of limitations uh, is due to expire within three months. And if they file an application, well, by the time the IRS makes a decision, uh, the statute of limitations on collections will be over and they will have no ob financial obligation to the IRS. Wrong. It means that that period during which the offering compromise is being processed, um, that period is told for statute of limitations, collections activity. And um, once it, the IRS is done reviewing the application, um, then presumably the statute of limitations would resume, um, assuming, of course, the taxpayer hasn't taken any further action in appealing. If, ex if an accepted offer is payable in installments, the taxpayer may be asked to extend the statute of limitations on assessment for the period the offer remains in force. So, for example, if the IRS says that they are going to 
um, agree to, let's say, a five-year um, offering compromise, uh, whereby installment payments of, say, $500 a month for five years are going to be required. And if the statute of limitations on collections ends at the end of three years, the IRS will insist that the taxpayer um, extend the statute of limitations period by two years um, to allow for um, the complete um, amount to be paid. Uh, the taxpayer, you know, again, can't have his cake and eat it too. If the IRS is willing to compromise the liability and uh, do it on an installment basis, whereby the installment um, is going to be for a period of five years and the statute of limitations on collections expires at the end of three years, once again, the IRS is going to insist that the taxpayer sign an agreement to extend the statute of limitations by two years. During the taxable year in which the offer is accepted, the IRS will also retain any refund to which the taxpayer would otherwise be entitled and apply that refund against the taxpayer's outstanding tax liability. Um, IRS uh, Internal Revenue Code 7122D gives the taxpayers the right to appeal the rejection of an offering compromise to the Office of Appeals, not the Court of Appeals. Please don't make that mistake. Again, we're talking Office of Appeals, mediation arm of the IRS. We're not at the Circuit of Appeals, uh, although that's the progression. If the taxpayer were to lose in tax court, they could appeal to the Circuit Court of Appeals, um, I believe. Um, and again, don't quote me. It's been a while since I've looked, but I believe it's the Circuit Court of Appeals where the petition, uh, where the taxpayer resided at the time he petitioned or she petitioned the tax court. Um, so it could be the Third Circuit, it could be the Fourth Circuit. Um, that would be the controlling Circuit Court of Appeals for any appeal of a denial in U.S. tax court of their case. Uh, again, the Office of Appeals represents the second largest collection rated or, or rather, sorry, Offer and Compromise represents the second largest collection-related program in appeals. Uh, when to request an appeal? An appeal must be made within 30 days from the date of the rejection letter. And remember, these timelines have teeth to them. They're not just saying recommended 30 days. It is only 30 days. And if the taxpayer blows that deadline, or if you blow that deadline, then you need to call your malpractice insurer ASAP because um, this is going to have serious consequences because the taxpayer um, is going to fault you and um, point the finger at you and uh, possibly even file a lawsuit against you. So you need to have these deadlines cemented in whatever timekeeping um, you know, book you use or, you know, cell phone you use, Let's get them in there, make sure they're marked, make sure you've um, informed the client um, of the deadline and uh, keep very detailed um, notes of your discussions with the taxpayer because sometimes uh, they lose track of the deadline and it really isn't your fault. You might well have been following up with them and then on the 31st day, they say, file the appeal. Well, it's too late. Um, the appeals division has no authority to consider an offer in compromise um, uh, submitted after the 30-day period expires. Uh, what does appeals consider? Well, appeals considers the same administrative guidelines and requirements that collections relies on. However, the appeals process offers an opportunity for a fresh look at the computation of reasonable collection potential.
Uh, appeals will use their settlement authority and offers filed based on doubt as to liability. Uh, appeals also considers offers in compromise that are submitted as a collection alternative in collection due process hearings. If a taxpayer's financial situation is complex or asset values must be verified, appeals must ask compliance to conduct an evaluation and send them a report. Based on that investigation, the appeals employee would determine whether an offer is accepted is acceptable as submitted, whether the offer amount needs to be raised or whether it must be rejected. Whether the appeals decision is final is based on the source of an offer uh, consideration. In an equivalent hearing, the appeals decision is final. In a collection due process hearing, the taxpayer whose offer has been rejected as a collection alternative has the opportunity for judicial review based on an abuse of discretion standard. And that wraps up today's presentation. Um, if you have any questions at all, my door is always open. Feel free to give me a call, shoot me an email. Um, there are a lot of uh, attorneys that specialize in, that are specializing more and more these days in um, tax law. And it's a niche area that not a lot of lawyers um, are in that can be very fruitful and be very satisfying. It's a fascinating area. Uh, every a week, uh, sometimes by the day, there are changes. And uh, if you're really into, you know, if you're a bookworm and you like to, you know, stay current with, uh, you know, with what's going on and you like the opportunity to, um, you know, appear in uh, tax court and be on your feet um, and have the opportunity to litigate and, um, you know, and be in negotiations with the IRS and with, um, uh, which with attorneys from chief counsel's office, it can be a fascinating uh, practice area. And I strongly encourage uh, you to, uh, you know, go out there and, uh, you know, and uh, start your own practice. Um, and uh, you can start working on cases like these. They're not very complicated, but again, the timelines are very strict and you want to be very careful when you take a case like these that you do your due diligence up front so that you're not leaving yourself open for, God forbid, any malpractice claims. Um, so again, it's been a pleasure and I wish you the very best.